0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Chernia
1: And I'm Claire Wiley, and tis the season for holiday gatherings and, of course, imbibing in various specialty cocktails. And in this spirit, we are welcoming Sarah and Rob Sargent of Alpine Distilling as our first guests this morning.
0: We'll talk about Alpine Distilling sustainability practices across the company, from recycling cardboard and glass to managing their distilling waste. And we'll hear more about the art of botanical spirits from soil to bottle.
1: Then, in the second part of the show, we'll rebroadcast an interview with Steve Slater, who is a Conservation Science Director for Hawkwatch International. Steve is going to talk about the origins of the organization and the work they're doing now, including their ongoing Golden Eagle Winter Feeding Program.
0: All of that and some updates on rates of precipitation around the state and why you can give your heat tape the rest of the year off. Environmental awareness and education that's what this green earth is all about stay with us
1: and welcome back to this green earth i'm claire wiley
0: and i'm chris cherniak
1: and this morning we welcome into the studio which we love live and in person especially when we have these wonderful locals here it is rob and sarah Sargent, and they are from alpine distilling thank you so much for being here Thank you for having us. Yeah,
2: good morning. Happy holidays.
1: Happy holidays. Well, we appreciate you coming. This is a really great time to be here as we talk about uh, all of the great things that are happening over there at Alpine Distilling. I'm sure a lot of us have uh, your bottles. In our, we've been imbibing several times, I'm sure, over the last couple of days. And what we want to do is begin first with, uh, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to start it off to the impetus or how this business all began. Rob, did you want to take that?
2: Sure. Um, well, thank you for having us this morning, and, and hopeful everyone's enjoying the cool weather and, and getting out and, and uh, getting some sunshine. We moved to Summit County about 15 years ago. My family actually moved to the Valley uh, Sandy area in the late 70s. And Utah's a pretty easy thing to fall in love with. You know, mm-hmm. the access to the mountains and the weather and uh, the just the sort of attitude that anything's possible. I sort of love that Utah energy. And so when we moved here, uh, I was still working out of Boston and traveling and my wife and I, uh, the kids have been a big influence for us. And so we thought about what, what we could do to get them involved in developing into good young men, productive, you know, responsible, mindful. You know, we're failing on all of that, but, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's fun to talk about at least. So I have a history, I'm from Eastern Kentucky, my family is, and we have a history of, uh, of distilling. And we thought about Thought about craft we thought about making something we we challenged ourselves to say could we add value to the place we call home where we've decided to put down roots and so in 2016 we opened the distillery and uh it has been an exciting fun uh ride uh, from day one i think and sarah finished her diploma in botanical distilling in scotland uh, a year after we opened which is pretty exciting Mm -hmm. she's a pretty rare air when that comes to i'm very lucky i'm 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 not only very deeply in love with my wife, but I'm also inspired as a business partner because she's pretty great. And so um, it's really fun to, to be doing this and having the kids watch us and, you know, and being able to hire good people and do good work and then, of course, bring more gold into these Silver Hills, you know, be, uh, be award-winning.
1: Absolutely. And you have won quite a few accolades
2: we have yeah i mean we're really pretty spoiled as far as that goes i mean the um from the whiskey side you know and i'm i'm a much different animal You know, we run two distilleries under one roof so my my wife and i have very little crossover uh which is on one hand really great it's more expensive to do it the way we do it but um, from the whiskey side one we make private whiskey for some of the biggest names in the world um, but we've won best bourbon we've won you know platinums and double golds and stuff Um, yeah, around the world, which is pretty fun. And I'm sure my wife will talk about her, although we need about an hour to go through it. It's pretty impressive what she's been able to accomplish over the last three years.
1: Well, we're proud to have you as locals here in our community and doing that right here from Summit County. Um, But another award that you recently won was a green business award. And so let's talk about some of those sustainability practices and let's begin with water because I think that that's such a big thing here in the high desert that you are really conscious about your water uses, usage. So can you tell us about some of the practices that you're doing? Do you want to take that Sarah? Yes. As stewards of our community, it's
3: very important to manage water and how we pull our water, hold our water and utilize our water. So whether it's whiskey production, gin, liqueur production, we are carefully measuring our water, holding um, unspent water and recycling what we can um, on a daily basis.
0: What level of quality water quality is required for mm. distilling? Mm. Wow, that's a big question.
3: Yes, so we we pull our water from the aquifer behind us, and then we take it through the normal distillation process that you would of uh, factoring out the iron and different um, mineralities that we need to take out mm-hmm. of water for drinking. And then, actually... Rob can speak to this as well. We have two different um, additional water filtration systems that we use to replicate different alkaline levels and then um, bring down, let's see, our water starts at 30,000 parts per million and we can bring it down to about six. Yeah. Well,
2: 800, yeah, 850, yeah. yeah, total dissolved solids is what right. it is out of the ground, which is almost crude. You know, it's, it's uh, barely water. And as Sarah mentioned, you know, the iron, the iron will, will beat up stainless steel. It's an unfair fight. You know, it may take it a while, sure. but the iron always wins, and you don't want to drink iron. And so, the the challenge for us is to not use chemicals, so to use pressure, to use nano pumps, and to re- use various forms mm-hmm. of reverse osmosis uh, to remove the iron um, and hold that efficiently. Most RO systems do a three to one, and we knew for our production levels that was that was not responsible usage of our of these natural resources. So we actually worked with a group out of St. Louis to design a water system for us, to use a, um, a novel system of holding and then pressurizing the water to remove what we needed to at more of like a one to one six ratio, which is really, really efficient. So our just pure waste uh, is exceptional. The only thing I would add too, to Sarah, to your point earlier, is it's, it's actually in our business plan that we have a responsibility to those affected by our efforts. And so that's not only today, you know, that Chris may want, you know uh, more water for his garden or whatever but it's also to our grandkids who we hope we don't have any but we hope one day you know that they live here and that the usage that we 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 employed today uh allowed them to be able to build a house and have a garden and raise their own children in this really special corner of the world
0: so what what you end up with is literally obviously distilled water like that water that You could buy at the supermarket. Oh, that's that's exactly right. Distilled, which is effectively, hopefully, just H2O. Yeah. No other impurities.
2: Well, so you want some minerals in the water. Yeah. I mean, so you want so for us, as Sarah was mentioning, we have two different ionizing machines. We have one from Japan at the distillery, which is capable of higher volume, and then we actually have one at the bar. So even our drinking Mm. water at the bar, we serve slightly alkaline water. Um, you know, the science is, is so-so on this, but there, is a, there, is a, there are some studies that show that blood-brain barrier is easier passed with a little bit more alkaline water. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also quite delicious, which mm-hmm. is nice, and, and it's a different level. So at the bar, we're 8.2, you know, maybe 8.5, uh, where at the distillery for our triple oak whiskey, our most premium, you know, I'll move the alkaline level up to about 10. Now, understand, too, but in a barrel... I'm using less than a gallon of water. So it's not a lot of use to mm. cut the finished product mm-hmm. as it is for the drinking water. But you need the sodium to do that. So essentially okay. what we're doing is we're turning those positive hydrogen ions that are floating into negative ions. And so uh, the hydroxyl effect of the water is... I, people are falling asleep, aren't they, <laughs> on the radio? I can, I can hear people uh, driving into uh, snow well, banks right now. I, sorry I, about that. I, I know. I get, but, I get
0: really excited about I, this. It's, I, I know, but... <laughs> i think the takeaway here is that there's a lot of chemistry involved in oh this, absolutely a lot mm-hmm. of under need to understand uh the, the chemical processes and actually this isn't cheap and, you know, no it, not it, at there, all there and so there is a premium uh associated uh, economic premium associated with producing yes high-end uh whiskey yeah chris this it's
2: it's this, 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 where this is six figure so two things on that this is absolutely a, a six-figure plus investment by us um, which, you know, we, I mean, look, it's a struggle. I mean, we're a very small business. And so, you know, we have to get profitability. Otherwise it's an extremely expensive hobby, but, but you cannot put profit above, uh, the, the responsibility to the environment. You just cannot. That is a wrong thing to do. The second thing I would say is we have two teenage boys. When I became a pilot, it was the first time I, I applied mathematics to my life, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh wait, if I don't calculate fuel right, I'm gonna fly into the ocean. Right. And this has been really fun, Chris, to bring the kids from that perspective of, okay, what is it that we're doing? What is in a glass of water? What's available? Right. What are chemicals? What are, you know, how do these things act? And not going to stoichiometry at the dinner table, because, you know, because again, I can put anyone to sleep, right? I apologize about that. but the um but it's really exciting and i do think we have an opportunity in utah with snow i mean look outside i mean our snow is different why is it different well we can measure that it's different california has different snow than we have Mm -hmm. um and that's i have to me i just find that very thrilling i I get i don't need any coffee i start talking about water i get very excited so and again i know it doesn't make great radio but i'm like glowing and you know big grinning and all this sort of thing. It's
1: great that you're live here though, because we can see the passion in Mm -hmm. your face. And you had used the word mindful before when we were chatting a little bit earlier and you said that um, you use that as a family, but you also translate that into all of your business practices and your choices. So across the board with water, what are some of the other sustainability practices that you uh, do as a business to help stay environmentally mindful? Yes, yeah, so at both
3: locations, uh, at the distillery, all of our spent grains are collected and, and sent down to the Valley for fuel. We have combined all of our manufacturing processes and ask our, our providers, whether it be from cardboard or labels, that they too are following green sustainable practices. Mm-hmm. Yes, we regulate our temperature at the distillery, lots of things like that. And then over to the lounge side, we compost our food. We have instant hot water. Uh, We use practices even down to our straws, whether we don't offer at all or we have ones that are easy to compost.
0: So um, just to explain a little more, you you take your spent grains and you send them down to, I think it's Wasatch Resource Recovery down in the city where they're put into... Uh, Rob, anaerobic digester, yes, right? Okay. Yes. Now, okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is fun. Um, and and then that digesting process, that biological processes that go on inside that digester, convert that material into, among other things, methane, methane gas, that's and that's right. pulled off, and that can be used for. Uh, well, generating energy, right. producing energy. And even the waste from that can be used as a fertilizer. That's, exactly That's correct. So there's a, there is a wonderful couple of end products there that are, That otherwise, where would your spent grains go? To the landfill? If you didn't do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can get them. At our volume, it's difficult to have a farm relationship to feed. Right. Yes, but, but, but yeah, and we also distill, ferment, uh, I'm sorry, cook, ferment, and distill fully on grain. It's a very old school process. Mm so we would make a lot of drunk cows uh... because they do have some alcohol in them which is not ideal but to spin them off uh... before that process is actually really water intensive right Um, which i also you you brought something up when we distill if we remember really quickly on chemistry again uh... that ethanol is a family of chemicals mm-hmm. so ethyl alcohol might be purely what we want to drink but you're also drinking other other alcohols in the family and so when we make when we distill we're making cleaning material. We're making acetones and ethyl acetates and furferols and, and acetyl and things like that. And so when you come to the distillery, we clean with what we make, which is a really fun, it's a really great way to be inspected. Our, our distillery is fully o, uh, o, kosher certified. And when the rabbi comes in, he's always at, like, where's your chemicals? Well, we don't, other than Don uh, no. for cleaning, we, we don't have, which is a, which is a, a denatured alcohol base, mm-hmm. um, we use what we make and uh Mm -hmm. that's that makes uh that makes the process kind of fun and exciting it also smells like like juicy fruit it smells really (laughs) fruity which is great so
0: that is that is that why during the pandemic that's right. So you were actually. That's right. With the turning of just a few knobs, you That's were right. you were producing uh, disinfectant.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a, a, vodka is ethanol exactly. and water. Uh, <laughs> sanitizers, ethanol, water, so. and hydrogen peroxide, and then some sort of humectant. You know, we Sarah brought in some glycerin for it, but I mean, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. You know, we did a million gallons for right. the state. <laughs> right. Uh, and mm-hmm. it wasn't. It's not hard. My dad was a head of infection control for the Navy. And in, in like Harlan, Kentucky, where I'm from, and other my grandmother, who's a nurse, used to go, and that was one of the things she would do is find someone with a still and they would get the distillate, and that's how they would sanitize. Because you didn't, you know, in 1920, you didn't run to, you know, Walgreens and pick right. up new whatever. But um, so anyway, I get right. excited about this stuff.
1: Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's I think it stands to the point of you being not only a leader in your business, but a leader in this community, in these spaces, of how we can be more sustainable or green and uh, I think that um, I had talked to you about this Sarah a little while back about being a leader in this space and you had said to me if we can do it anyone can do it because you are a smaller business so tell me about that why do you think it's so important for people to step up to the plate as businesses and change their practices
3: well, we all have the opportunity to do something. And, and like we spoke about before, if we can do it on a smaller scale, anyone can do it. are the big company. So it doesn't take that much to recycle. We recycle our glass, cardboard, spent grains. We, we hire locals, all of our full-time employees are local and can take the bus, a walk, a scooter in. There's just endless possibilities.
0: How about uh, energy use? Is it, is the distilling process Uh, Fairly energy intensive?
2: Yeah, so it's actually another great. So we use uh, Bain Marie. So we actually use jacketed steam and we recycle the hot water afterward. That's what we use for cleaning. So we have a coil system uh, that's done into the scotch boiler system that we have. So it's such another good, because we do have natural gas in Utah and it's pretty clean natural gas. And so versus electricity, uh, we're able to, um, it's, a, it's a slower process for us, distilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really are the least effective <laughs> distillers that you'll ever meet, um, but it's very clean, and it's very pure, and all, every, we create the hot water, so instead of just wasting that, that's what we use to go through a specific site. And it's not potable water, but that's what we use for, uh, for cleaning the floors afterwards, for right. mopping up, things of that nature, so yes.
0: And, and you could I, probably melt snow on your roof
2: yeah
0: oh yes <laughs> yeah yeah let's Replace hope we need Yeah. tape yeah that's right. it
2: yeah. <laughs> i had to get that in that's coming yes. Uh,
0: so yeah so yeah opportunities to to not waste energy uh, yeah, right. in this way in this sense here yeah. energy
2: well we, and it's it's been a fascinating you know I, I, as you know sarah's from michigan i'm from kentucky you know we don't i don't think we think about these things but i think if we if you're going to choose to live in the high desert which all of us have um i just i think there's a responsibility to that and no matter what the business is you at least have to ask yourself you know are we commuting as effectively as we can are we taking advantage of the infrastructure as well as we can and then also just you know what are those how are we how are we affecting our neighbors and i think if we just ask ourselves simple questions of that nature um you know we'll maybe we don't see this in our in our lifetime but i do think that the future uh, will look back and say Thank you very much as you know and that there's a history of that there's great leadership in this town um, making strong long-term decisions and i think that that we're just trying to stay in line with with what we're what we're seeing as uh, as citizens,
1: and we here in this studio could not agree more. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. We are speaking with Robin Sarah Sargent from Alpine Distilling, and uh, we are talking about sustainable practices. Uh, but now we are going to turn our attention to botanicals. Um, we uh, have probably all seen how you can infuse. Uh, different herbs or shrubs into uh, liqueur, liqueur, uh, but we are going to talk about the process with a master here in our own midst. Uh, Sarah, tell us about your process because I know that this is also something that you uh, do sustainably as well, but tell us a little bit more about that botanical spirit process. Of course, yes. Yeah. So um, for our gin, we use a vapor
3: extraction process that allows us for a proprietary balance of pressure, speed, and to pull the elements that we want from each of those botanicals. Cause that's what's great about botanicals that we had spoken about is the long history of that. And going back to biblical times and historic times where you think about botanicals were infused into different spirits or concoctions to make you feel good. And how do we get there? So what's great about gin and liqueurs is that they make you feel good and they're fun and they're light. and. Um, and in our case we love that they're well balanced uh we put our best foot forward on that to elevate your time with friends and family
1: and we talk about uh you even uh going to the soil and thinking about when you do extract these herbs or uh, botanics how you're doing that and you're doing that in a very green way
3: yes so that's um very exciting because botanicals i love studying botanicals, learning where flavor comes from, and how those, uh, we incorporate that into our spirit collection. And so we have a high quality standard with working with our sourcing partners and following industry standards with the American Herbal Production Society. Uh, I sit on the American Herb Society as well as the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. And what's great is we pull, in this case, we pull our juniper from Croatia. It has a longer growing season. It's quite delightful. It's like vacation juniper. <laughs> uh, we do have juniper in our backyard, but it's, but it's angry. We have harsh winters. We, we live in the high desert. So when you, it's kind of got a light blue dusting on it. So it just depends on what you're getting from that. But as you think about that, we work with um, our global partners on collecting and bringing in those botanicals. So to get back to the soil, uh, 80% of our um, botanical partners that we work with use crop rotation to promote soil fertility and promote the use of long-term soil. That's really important. So there are some botanicals we just can't get in Utah because we are in the high desert. So how do we best find where those great things come from? So our ginger, we pull from Guatemala and it comes down to actually crazy as it sounds, the arsenic levels in the soil that's in Guatemala. And um, once again, going back to those botanicals, all of our um, botanical sources use natural water sources, whether it be rain, rivers, wells, and 90% of our our botanical sources work directly with the growers, which is great.
1: Yeah, and I um, am always kind of in awe on how you figure out what pairs well together, um, what uh, will be best with a gin or best with another liqueur, but you had just talked about how gin kind of lends itself to being very friendly in a botanical world. Can you talk about that? Yes, there is, um, what's great about gin,
3: there's so many possibilities. It's like being a chef. You just can, you compare and you can find out why, why do certain things work? Why is Angelica better from France than other places? Why uh, coriander that we can even grow here in Park City in limited um, amounts, why is coriander from Egypt so beneficial and what does, what do weather patterns have to, to play into all that and what farmers can best produce those different botanicals and items? And oh,
0: sorry. I, and I was just going to say, it's not as simple as say, well, we're just going to build a, a greenhouse here and grow our own botanicals. Because again, <laughs> there's a terroir impact, there's a water of impact uh, or influence. Uh, and that's why you, you, pref- you know, I'm sure you would prefer to be more local that's a sustainable or environmentally mindful way but you like you say you have to get some of these from uh, other parts of the globe
3: that's right and when you and when you think about the bigger picture you can partner and source and work with other farmers and and growers that are working together to help continue those farms so like we talk about guatemala there are a whole uh, there's a whole network of farming in through central america and they all work together well Mm -hmm. then how do we best utilize that? The, mm-hmm. Rob's uh, mother was in international trade and I worked with her oh, 20 years ago and we were talking about how to bring botanicals and different things into the country from other, other places in the world. And so there are these great opportunities to kind of
1: shrink and be um, sustainable all in one fell swoop. And what, when you're in there, I, I have seen you when you used to have this space that looked like a lab. And you had a coat on what is it (laughs) that uh, you are so excited about making in your lab what gets you jazzed um what are the flavors the profiles that you have found to be your favorites so i I, I still do have a small lab i don't always wear the jacket
3: unless it's really cold (laughs) a lot more overalls these days i know we share that affinity um We love overalls, as as Claire is wearing some overalls today, for those of you who can't see into the studio. (laughs) But... um... At this point, so I have a series of smaller stills that I work on as I I create different botanical blends for whether it be the St. Regis, the Auberge Collection, the Rolls-Royce. We just launched their gin in October, which was very exciting. Uh, To date, I've created over 2,000 different gins in an effort to find the best gin, which we um, are proud to say is our Alpine Elevated Gin. It won Gin of the Year in London and is the most decorated gin in the United States. Wow.
1: That's impressive. I know
0: we only have another minute or so. Um, getting back to the environmental thing, uh, Earth Day is coming up. Well, comes up in in April. Or so, do you have a cocktail planned for Earth Day? Oh, that's a great. Is that a great? Is that a oh minute? my
3: gosh! Well, Chris, you have
0: you now have four now months to they work will, on that. Yeah. Oh no, we are so good
3: because. Chris, every day is Earth Day. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. Uh,
0: then you should have a cocktail uh, ready uh, for every day. Oh, we day. do. It's, it's called the Park
3: City Negroni. It's quite delightful. I think
0: uh, just a glass of water <laughs> is, <laughs> is is, is uh, has its own environmental uh, mindfulness. So, but yeah, that, well, I would we do. About
3: that. That's a great question. So our lounge located at 364 Main Street, open Tuesday through Sunday. By the way, <laughs> um, you can you can try all of our It's the extension of our living room where we do tastings, uh, local events, live music, all that fun stuff. And we have retail bottle sales, even on Sundays. But our Earth Day green drink, I'm so glad you asked, Chris, is our AB Spritz. And if you haven't tried it yet, our Angever is an herbal liqueur, 33 botanicals. It
1: is quite delightful. And it's green, (gasps) all natural. Yeah, the color is even green. I just had it the other day. I made a cocktail out of it. It's absolutely wonderful. But I think that uh, for... Our, our show and for us, I think that um, knowing that there are businesses out there, especially locally that are being very mindful, that are being uh, very environmentally friendly, if you will, and that you are being a leader in this space. And I think that if anyone out there that is listening to this, it's a challenge uh, and you rose up to it. So hopefully we can put that challenge out to other businesses in our community and uh, have them be a little bit more mindful about what they do
0: rob and sarah sargent of alpine distilling thank you so much for joining us this morning real quick the website
3: www.alpinedistilling.com
0: perfect thank you very much thank you happy holidays all right let's take a, a quick break when we come back we'll uh turn our attention to hawks raptors hawk watch it's this green earth we'll be right back Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak.
1: And I'm Claire Wiley.
0: In the second part of the show, we're going to uh, rebroadcast an interview that Claire and I had a couple months ago with Steve Slater. He's the Conservation Science Director for Hawk Watch International. We're going to be talking about hawks, raptors, uh, and in particularly uh, a winter feeding program for golden eagles. Which you've never, if you've never seen one, they are unbelievably spectacular birds, birds. Yes. So here's our interview with uh, Steve Slater from Hawkwatch International.
4: Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: All right. Well, let's start. Get some general background. Tell us a little bit about Hawkwatch, their uh, origins and mission.
4: Sure. Um, so Hawkwatch International began in 1986. So we've been around for nearly 40 years now. Um, and we're based here, have an office here in Salt Lake City, but um, do work around the globe. Um, we're an international organization with programs in um, Africa and South America, but uh, do a lot of our work here in um, our backyard in Utah and in the West. Um, and really, we started as a migration monitoring organization. So raptors in the fall have this um, interesting um, behavior where they... they they migrate along ridge lines because of the updraft from the winds that encountered the westerly winds and so uh, it provided an opportunity for for researchers to count and census raptors to get a sense of their populations and so that's that's how we began where our name comes from hawk watching um, observing raptors on migration Um, and from there we've continued to evolve over the decades with you know conservation research and education programs we do a lot of community and, and school programs and, and outreach, in addition to the various research programs and conservation efforts that we
0: do. Yeah, I'm I'm from back east, and there's two locations I've visited. Uh, one in Pennsylvania. The the exact name of it escapes me. It might yeah, literally Mountain. be Hawk Mountain. Yeah, uh, right. uh, an, an important, I guess, migratory. Uh, Way station or area like you say they hawks or raptors use on their way uh, Migrating north or south and then even down in uh, the Cape May area You know you might see hawks and other raptors migrating down with all the other birds uh, Mm -hmm. Going through that area are there locations like that similar to that uh, out here in the West?
4: Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot more sites out east just because of the population density there and people looking for these sites, but um hawk Watch really was founded to fill that gap in the west and um, there weren't sites like that when hawk Watch was founded and so our original founder um, found a site um, near he was going to utah state and so went up into the wellsville mountains um north of us and and found a site there where thousands of birds pass every year um, we have long-running sites that we count um, south of wendover in nevada where we see you know, twenty thousand some birds in a season and yeah. also Capture birds and band them, um, but we have sites now um, along the Pacific Northwest and down in Texas and a very various places in the West where you can and see this this fall migration.
0: Uh, I know the answer to this question is going to be depends, but uh, um, wh- how do uh, migratory patterns vary? Do do hawks fly great distances like you know some birds we know fly thousands of miles? Do, what is their migratory patterns
4: like? yeah um and exactly right it does vary um swainson's hawks are one of the longer migrators in, in peregrine falcons um they can go from you know anywhere in in north america where they do their nesting to um clear to down to the southern end of south america so making fairly large migrations a lot of our raptors don't go as far we have these smaller raptors called you know sharpshin sharpshin hawks mm-hmm. and super hawks that may come from you know to the north of us in Canada or the northern US and and they may just go to you know the southern US or into um, central south northern South America for different species that we have Um, vultures can go into northern South America Um, for golden eagles um, they you know we have a lot of for example a lot of resident golden eagles that live here year-round but then in the winter we'll see an influx of birds from further north that will winter here in utah wyoming and other places so it is really really variable depending on the species and and what they need in the winter um if you're you know an insectivore uh, you know an owl or a small raptor that feeds on insects and small um live prey you might have to go to you know say mexico for example where you're going to be able to find that in the winter versus an eagle that can feed on rabbits and other things Mm -hmm. uh, and make use of carrion in the winter time
1: and i'm curious um in the research that you do what does this inform for conservation why are these birds such a great lens for conservation
4: yeah great question um because raptors are so wide-ranging and they you know do cover large landscapes and um, and then they're, they're top or their apex predators so they you know they feed on other animals they can they could tell us a lot about the, the health of the environment um Golden eagles are a great example. That's a species I've spent a lot of my career studying. Um, you know, they have territories that are, you know, many kilometers in in diameter, and that's the area that they need to find enough, you know, jackrabbits and ground squirrels and other things to feed themselves and then to feed their nestlings. And so, you know, if we have increase in wildfires due to climate change or human activity, um, or if we have shrub and habitat degradation. Um, at large scales you're going to have these um somewhat gradual losses and declines in prey but that's going to for a species like a golden eagle that requires you know hundreds of prey items per year to to raise its young um, whether or not they're able to be successful with raising their young and given years or over uh, a longer time frame tells us a lot about the health of the landscape that they're living in and whether you know there's uh, enough food there and then we also gotten in a lot of research lately where we're doing you know, sampling taking blood samples when we are banding and doing other research activities which can tell us a lot about exposure to you know are they are they getting mercury from you know birds that they're feeding on off the great salt lake are they being exposed to lead from other sources in the environment from humans and other things mm. so they really do provide a a great study species to tell us about um, our, our wider landscape health
0: well i'll i'll that question begs itself. Are they are you finding um pollutants of like that or contamination in their in their blood like mercury so, or, or PFOSS or PFOS or such such things like that?
4: Right. So so we have with bull eagles we've been involved in a research project where we're sampling the blood in the nestlings. So when they're pretty young to see what they're being exposed to as they're being fed. And and we do see elevated levels of lead in certain areas closer to humans. Um elevated levels of mercury um, around the Great Salt Lake and other water bodies, um, and, and then other, some other heavy metals as well at, at lower concentrations. But uh, unfortunately, we've, we've known that lead levels spike in a, a number of raptors in the fall and winter because of, of hunting activities, which um, there are alternatives to using lead, but a number of hunters still use lead. And so hmm. there's, a, there's this correspondence when, uh, if, for example, you take a deer, you, you typically dress it in the field and then you leave got piles and other things behind that still have lead fragments in them and, and eagles and other scavengers in the winter will take advantage of these. And so that, those are just some of the ways that they're being exposed to some of these contaminants.
0: Yeah, it's a unfortunate consequence of, in some ways, like free food, Hey, there there's a there's an animal dressed out the deer that's been dressed out and, and there's a source of carrying for it um but there's also the consequence potentially of lead pellets or other lead fragments you like you say uh uh within that same animal um so let's let's turn our attention now to the the golden eagle first of all t- tell us about the golden eagle is is it one of the most spectacular uh raptors around i, I mean i that's that's my
4: answer yes sure. yeah right I, I certainly would say so again as somebody who spent uh, most of their 17 years at hawk watch studying golden eagles and having that privilege um yeah they're definitely my favorite raptor and they're very impressive for a number of reasons um they're they're our largest hunting bird of prey I and mean, we have condors which are also very you know large 10 11 foot wingspans but golden eagles can have seven foot wingspans and um, again top of the food chain um, the research that we've done we we see everything from jackrabbits to deer and antelope fawns to badgers to um, various snakes and so that anything that occurs out in their habitat can be potential prey for them um, they're very powerful um, very long-lived um, they can live up to 40 years based on the Mm. you know the longest banded bird that's been found um out there and we we put transmitters on on these birds to see where they go and the threats they face and just to see how wide-ranging they are we've transmitted birds mostly from utah and they go you know everywhere from canada to mexico and all points in between east and west uh in in the western u.s and so just very impressive birds um very powerful large um and yeah just at the at the top of the food chain as far as raptors and uh and, and aerial predator goes
0: what's a a good way to kind of discern that hey i'm looking at a golden eagle not necessarily a hawk or or a bald eagle is there a certain uh profile that they have in the sky or a wing flapping yes. movements or what's a how do i tell
4: Well, generally with the golden eagle, just because of their their huge size, that will distinguish them from other hawks. But we do have um, quite regularly people will see turkey vultures, and Mm -hmm. when they're still here in the summer, involved, and they're a similar size. But turkey vultures will hold their wings in what's called a dihedral, this slight V, and they kind of rock in the wind. Whereas golden eagles have a very flat wing um, profile um, and these very long, kind of straight. Wings, um, which distinguish them from buteos, which have more which are our hawks our red-tailed hawks and other things which have more rounded wings um you know smaller things like falcons have more pointed wings so there's a number of of markers like that and then if if we do have bald eagles here as well and so um young bald eagles can have um brown heads and mm. be confused with golden eagles occasionally but their their head size and their bill and kind of the way they have um some um model white markings differs between the golden and bald eagles for those that are um, more um, into birding and distinguishing those characteristics
1: and with golden eagles what is their population like mm-hmm. is it uh, in decline is it doing all right where do they sit
4: yeah so you know bald eagles many people know have had a, you know just a wonderful success and recovery with the endangered species act and um, banning of DDT they were very low numbers in the 60s and 70s and now you know they've been removed from the Endangered Species Act and we have well over 300,000 some birds um, in the U.S. Golden Eagles unfortunately um, we have only a less than 40,000 Golden Eagles in all of the United States and we probably have a few thousand breeding pairs in Utah we, we get a few thousand additional show up in the winter time um, overall um, they're considered stable but potentially declining, and our our migration trends show declines for golden eagles. Um, and, and the real concern for golden eagles is that um, there's been a lot of research from ourselves and other partners where we've compiled uh, just a wealth of transmitter data from hundreds of birds and banding data from the past decades, and um, we found that uh, almost three quarters of mortality of birds after their first year for golden eagles is. From human causes so Mm. electrocution because of their huge wingspan Mm. they can touch more than one wire so they get electrocuted at Mm. high rates Um, shooting still unfortunately is um, pretty prevalent for Eagles just from a lack of understanding and misconception Um, uh, collisions with cars um, and wind turbines um, with the growth of renewable energy um, and, and things like that. Are unfortunately, these what we call anthropogenic mortality is right. really high for golden eagles.
1: So you talked about um, the pairs. I'm interested about their mating. Do they pair up, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe a crane would, or do they um, go about
0: <laughs>
4: switch partners? Switch <laughs> so partners. Right? Yeah. Or are they they're, lifelong partners? They're generally they're generally considered monogamous. So we'll have pairs last for you know decades and use huh. the same nest uh or two they they all they often have alternate nests that they'll switch between in one larger territory but um one of the things that we've been doing is putting cameras um on the cliff face near the nest and we can see all the different food items that are being brought in and, and how the nestlings develop over time and any any threats that they face that way um and so these are motion sensitive cameras that take a picture whenever the birds come and go or the nestling moves um and you can see from year to year like some of the the eagles generally are brown with these golden napes. That's how they get their name. And they, you know, superficially they look very similar. But some of them will have a, a particular um, a white feather on this one spot on their shoulder or on on the crown. And you'll see the same bird um, year after year, the same female, the same male. Um, and from um, observations in general, they they appear to be monogamous and holding the same territory. Occasionally, you know, if one of them dies, of course they'll they'll take a, a new mate. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah.
0: We're speaking with Steve Slater. He's Conservation Science Director at Hawk Watch International. And we're talking about Hawk Watches, programs, et cetera, but uh, Golden Eagles in particular. Um, and now let's look into the this project going on or this research project going on in Utah's West Desert with respect to Golden Eagles. And interesting, the Department of Defense, can you t- talk a little bit about the project?
4: Yeah. So um we've been researching golden eagles in the west desert for uh, a few decades now and our our research has kind of followed what we're learning and so you know we were tracking the nesting birds and, and and monitoring the nest territories out there um for quite some time and the military has some fairly large land holdings out there the utah test and training range where hill air force flies to the west of the great salt lake to do you know um air force training uh and then the dugway proving ground to the south um where there's a lot of training and, and uh, ground exercise and drone training and other things and and both of the, these large properties are situated right in the midst of a bunch of blm land in the west desert um, and have you know a lot of uh, mountain and cliff and desert habitat that's perfect eagle habitat so the military also has a, a mission to protect the environmental resources Uh, while they go about their training exercises and they have management plans for how to protect um, their resources so we've partnered with them over the past few decades now to help um, specifically understand the eagles on their property there's quite a few territories on these properties nesting there and seemingly doing fairly well because the military only uses a small portion of the landscape that they you know basically control and keep other activities you know, there's not um, OHV use there's not recreational shooting there's not um, all these other activities mm-hmm. so they're in some ways they're they're closed um, areas from except for these small footprints where they do their training um, but we've helped them monitor the Eagle populations and, and part of their program they've supported our work in the, the area surrounding so they can have context for um, how the Eagles are doing in a larger west desert and landscape around where they do their their work in training and so we've been fortunate to have them as a a partner on this and helped fund this research and the the tracking of the nest and the color banding and tracking of eagles over the past um, few decades and then most recently we've as we've been putting transmitters on eagles and nestlings and they leave the nest and and a bird dies or or survives um, and, and and moves around to the landscape we learn about the of issues they're facing and one of the things that we saw with this transmitter data from the eagles is that um one a lot of eagles were leaving the west desert once winter would come presumably because they couldn't find enough food because of shrub loss and other things hmm. and were being struck by cars in like central utah and areas where there's an abundance of dead deer um, along the roadway just because these are wintering areas and they're being struck at higher rates and so they were going to take advantage of that resource um, and being struck themselves when they would you know gorge on these dead animals and then not be able to fly away quick enough um and so for us that kind of connected the dots that um the habitat in the west desert might not be supporting eagles even though a lot of our birds were sticking around in the winter in the west desert and and some of them starving um we would recover them in the winter um, from starvation and so this brought about connecting these two different ideas that there's a wealth of uh roadkill that is uh, not really being used for anything other than ending up in landfills or just rotting on the side of the road or attracting scavengers into dangerous zones along Mm -hmm. these busy roads and so we've we've worked to move uh roadkill and other carrion into the west desert into areas that are known to be wintering areas for eagles from our our birds our transmittered birds and 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 supplementing them with this um, source of food in the winter when, you know, their live prey is just not as available. They're you know either hibernating or just at lower abundance or under the snow. And so this is an attempt to get them through these lean months in areas where we've had a lot of habitat degradation. And one other piece of the story is that there's been this uh, disease called rabbit hemorrhagic disease um, uh, that's been introduced from Europe. That's really decimated our jackrabbits, which are kind of the historic core prey item for eagles. And so this is um, somewhat of an emergency um, measure to help get them through these years while this disease is playing out in the rabbit population, and also um, while we're seeing um, low reproduction in the eagles from our monitoring efforts to try to help them survive at higher rates through the winter and also have um, more birds attempt nesting after um, being in good fitness um, after the winter ends.
1: And you do have an event coming up that people actually can get involved with to see how mm-hmm. this works. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah, so we'll have a presentation by one of our scientists, uh, Cody Allen, on Thursday at noon. Um, uh, so you can sign up through our website at hawkwatch.org to join that event um, through um, uh, virtually. And uh, we'll give a, a longer overview of The history of the Eagles in the area and what we've learned and and why we're doing this work and and how we're measuring our our what we're putting on the landscape and the Eagles use um you know for example we have cameras that are taking photos of the Eagles foraging on, on the roadkill we're providing and and we weigh everything we put out there to to track the benefit and so they'll go into more depth of all the nuts and bolts of of that research and and also share some really fantastic and compelling photos of eagles interacting with the not only the the roadkill and carrion that they're feeding on but other scavengers that show up um like coyotes we've got photos of of eagles basically defending carcasses from coyotes um which are really amazing we've got bobcats that will hang out on, on on camera just stuffing themselves for days on end um so just yeah there'll be some interesting photos from the work as well as just the the future of the project and and how people can help support it.
0: All right. um, We just got maybe one more minute or so, but I I wanted to go back to um, their migratory patterns with respect to climate change. In a warming Mm -hmm. world, are, are their migratory patterns changing? Or more of these golden eagles who used to say, oh, "I'm going to fly south to this location in uh, southern Arizona or Mexico," or are they saying, "You know what? It's not too bad here. I think I'll just stay <laughs> stick around the West Desert." Uh, is there any evidence of that?
4: Well, we we certainly expect there are going to be changes like that, um, where what we call short stopping, where birds are necessarily not going as far south as they used to, and so. Um, We may actually see more overwintering birds in in Utah and Wyoming and other um, kind of more mid-latitude western states in the future, birds that went, you know, further into southern Utah and and New Mexico and other areas may end up staying a little bit further north because um, there isn't as much snow or it's warmer. Um, We've also seen that in general with our migration trends, just to tie back to kind of our original, um, how Hawkwatch started, where um some of the counts for species are 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 now the peaks peak numbers are getting a little bit later um some birds appear to be staying a little bit further north so that affects kind of counts at different sites um but you know all those things uh, it's great and on one hand that the birds are able to adjust what they're doing because they are you know they're not bound to the ground like some other species that can't respond to climate change as easily Mm. um but there does open up You know this risk that even though we have maybe milder winters on average that you can still have these pretty extreme events that if birds stay further north they can end up getting trapped in some areas or have a mismatch in resources where there's potential for catastrophic you know die off and and threats like that so that's our our big concern i think with these these shifts that are kind of happening right now and and how those are going to play out into the future all right, well, we
0: we got to wrap up. It was really interesting uh, chatting with you. Steve Slater, Conservation Science Director with Hawk Watch International. Real quick, website? Yeah, hawkwatch.org. Hawkwatch.org. Steve, as always, thank you for uh, joining us this morning on This Green Earth.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: Thanks for having me.